Hello, this is Robert Bathurst with the second of our podcasts celebrating 900 years of Leeds Castle history. We're going to pick up the story exactly where we left it at the end of episode one, with Eleanor of Castile, wife of Edward I, acquiring the castle in one of her trademark opportunistic property deals. Leeds Castle had been in private ownership for 160 years, and it's about to begin its 274-year life as a royal castle. It's the remarkable and often overlooked Eleanor who's the star of this episode, not her famously ruthless husband, Edward I, you know, the dreaded Longshanks, whom you may remember from the film Braveheart. Eleanor not only transformed a literally bog-standard Norman Motten Bailey structure into the elegant castle we know today, she brought some much-needed style and civilization to the English court. Eleanor of Castile is the first of six queens of England who owned Leeds Castle independently of their husbands, establishing a precedent for queens as major property owners in their own right. Some commentators think she took her interest in property ownership too far. Perhaps this episode will build a more rounded view of her personality, motivations and influence. And to do that, I am delighted to be joined by Sarah Cockerell, author of the most recent and probably the most exhaustive biography of Eleanor of Castile, a queen who spent too long in obscurity. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Robert. Really delighted to be here. Now, when we think of queens called Eleanor, it's not Eleanor of Castile who springs immediately to mind. Henry II's wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, is a lot more famous, isn't she? Why did you write a biography of Eleanor of Castile? Well, funnily enough, I'm actually writing a biography of Eleanor of Aquitaine at the moment. You're right, um, Eleanor of Aquitaine was a far more famous and glamorous figure than Eleanor. I just felt that having discovered so much about Eleanor of Castile, it was time that she had a proper biography of her own. Um, Her husband, of course, Edward I, um, famous as the Hammer of the Scots, was also a very tough warrior in the Crusades and also in conquering Wales. And although Eleanor was influential in helping him to become a warrior king, she was certainly uh, the great inspiration for his gentler side and his great love of his life. So let's start in 1278. It's 24 years into her happy marriage to Edward and before all the troubles in Wales and Scotland. She acquires Leeds Castle from William de Laban, who was commander of Edward I's navy and a loyal royal servant. Perhaps too honest a servant, because rather than use his position to line his own pockets, he got himself into serious debt with his Jewish bankers. In fact, the Jewish banking community play an important role in Eleanor's story. Yes, they do. The practice of charging interest on loans, which was known as usury, was actually outlawed amongst the Christian community. So the Jewish population filled that gap and provided finance on an interest-paying basis. Um, That created a certain number of problems, and they had problems as well in enforcing the debts that they got in that respect. And so quite often one found canny canny nobles buying up debts which the Jews could not actually enforce. And this is exactly what Eleanor did when she found Leeds Castle, fell madly in love with it, and determined that she had to have it. She acquired many properties in exactly this sort of way, uh, liaising with the Jewish um, moneylenders, and she actually had regular contacts with them. I think, Sarah, we need some background to explain how Eleanor became this acquisitive businesswoman, and then perhaps consider whether she deserves a better reputation. Where does she come from? 
Well, she was brought up in the Spanish kingdom of Castile. The court in which she was brought up was perhaps the most cultivated in Europe at the time. Her father, Ferdinand, later Saint Ferdinand, was not just a great warrior king, but he was also a polymath. He was incredibly intellectually advanced. He started universities. He patronised all sorts of scientists and artists. And her brother, Alfonso, became known as Alfonso the Wise. He was a true intellectual powerhouse and also wrote heavily on how best to educate children. Uh, Eleanor and Alfonso remained close throughout their lives. So as a result, Eleanor, by the age of 13, was very, very highly educated. Um, And she really had read a phenomenal amount. She had also been brought up in a culture where it was perfectly normal for women to manage property. And that is something that would have been part of her expectation. So she's 13 and the daughter of a powerful king. And it's time, as was the practice, to marry her off advantageously. Eleanor's brother Alfonso has now succeeded his father as king of Castile and is anxious not to pick any fights with the English who control Gascony, the region around Bordeaux in southwest France. So King Henry III's 15-year-old son, Edward, travels to Gascony to marry a girl he's never met. But that's normal for royal marriages. Now, what do you think the cultivated 13-year-old Eleanor thought of the lanky, rather less polished Prince Edward? Well, she probably saw a number of pluses and a number of minuses. On the minus front, there's no doubt about it. He was not her intellectual equal, and she would have been pretty shocked at how cosseted he had been and how little he'd seen of the world compared to what her brothers had experienced. But on the plus side, she was looking at a very tall, very handsome young man who had ambitions to be a great warrior king, which which is exactly what I think she would have wanted to marry. But they had plenty of time to get to know each other and they quickly discovered that they had much in common. They were both obsessed with horses. And then they had a chance to really um, align their interests because Edward was put in charge of governing Gascony, which was a huge challenge for a 15-year-old and something which Eleanor, who'd been educated much more with that kind of life in mind, uh, was able to help him on. So that first year in Gascony, they become friends, they become lovers. In that first year, she expects her first baby and loses it very, very late in the the pregnancy. And um, that's the first of between 16 and 18, we can't be sure, pregnancies, uh, many of which, I'm afraid, ended unsuccessfully or the children later died young. And if you think of the physical toll, it shows you what an extraordinarily tough woman she was, that she not only went through all those childbirths, but she also was conducting business and travelling with her husband at the same time. So they go to England. For Eleanor, it's her first experience of it, with plenty of lessons learned in government and at the start of one of the most successful royal marriages ever. It seems they really loved each other and, unusually for those times, never strayed. You cite plenty of evidence in your book for the love they had of each other, the tokens they exchanged, and also a couple of possibly apocryphal stories – There's the one of Eleanor risking her own life for Edward while they're on a crusade, sucking the poison out of him from an assassination attempt, and the rather salacious one about how they like to celebrate Easter Monday. So um, please tell us about that one and whether there's any foundation for it. Yes, you don't really believe this one is true, do you? But I can promise you that it is. It is actually from the best possible source, the accounts. 
Uh, what you find in the accounts is that every every year after Easter Monday, there is a record in the accounts for Edward paying a fairly substantial sum to Eleanor's ladies. Now, we know pretty much certainly that Edward and Eleanor were very good and they respected the church's ban on sex during Lent. So that meant that by the time that Easter Monday came around, um, they had not been able to sleep together for some time. So what would happen is that Edward would go to Eleanor's rooms and would try to be let in. And his her, her ladies would hold him hostage and say he couldn't go in until he paid them off effectively. And you find those sums of money sitting in the accounts. What's particularly touching is that there is a sum of money in the accounts for this for the year after Eleanor died. Basically, Edward missed their domestic routine so much that he still paid the ladies. In between all these love games, there are more serious matters to attend to. Edward's father, Henry III, has made a mess of governing the country. And in 1258, three years after Edward and Eleanor's return from Gascony, he has another revolt on his hands, this time led by the formidable Simon de Montfort, who wants the barons to have a greater say in the government of the country. Remarkably, Edward initially sides with de Montfort, but then returns to his father's side and eventually crushes the rebel barons at the Battle of Evesham in 1265. The balance of power seems to have shifted, not just from the barons to the crown, but perhaps also from Henry to Edward. Definitely. After Evesham, I think one definitely has to look at Edward as being king-in-waiting. And he's king-in-waiting with an agenda which is informed very substantially by the kinds of ideas that Eleanor had imbibed during her childhood. So Edward is starting to develop the kind of military reputation which Eleanor would always have wanted to see. But he's also developed via her and her family a very clear sense of how England should be governed, which was something his father had never understood. And after Evesham in 1265, we also see the emergence of Eleanor as an acquirer of property. Uh, in your book, the catalogue of manners she acquires around the country is quite staggering. And she soon has to set up a whole office of lawyers, administrators and rent collectors to manage them all. So why was she so driven to build a property portfolio? Well, I think there's a number of factors go into this. One very obvious one is that from the very beginning of their marriage, Edward and Eleanor had been starved of funds by Henry III. You can trace their honeymoon tour by the IOUs that they scattered behind them. And so they definitely wanted to make themselves more financially secure. There was also the factor when Edward became king of his hugely expensive campaigns, which needed to be funded. But also she became aware during the time of the Barons' War and afterwards just how little property there was available to fund and maintain the Queens of England. That was partly because of properties which Henry III had given away. And she could see that it would give her a direct role in her husband's rule if she were to put together a property portfolio. And as I've said, that was something she would have expected to do, given her background, and it was a natural role for her to adopt. Yes, but if she had very little money, how was she able to build this property empire? Well, that's 
a slightly difficult question to answer because we don't have all the financial records. But the way it looks is that originally you have grants either from Henry III or from Edward. So she is given properties. She then manages properties incredibly well. She puts together properties that are nearby, makes them run more efficiently. She then has revenues from those which enable her to buy more properties and so on. It's really quite a familiar profile for a modern property developer. So by the time Eleanor acquires Leeds Castle in 1278, it's just one of many estates she owns around the country. But it's more than simply a revenue-producing piece of property. Leeds Castle is a bit special, and she intends to spend as much time here as she can. It's close to London and Canterbury. It sits very nicely on its two islands in the River Len, protected by its deep moat. The hunting is good, and she enjoyed that. But most of all, she sees an opportunity to bring some of the style and refinement of her native Castile to rural Kent. So she demolishes the crude Norman keep on the smaller of the two islands and replaces it with a much more ornate palace. She demolishes the Norman curtain wall and creates a much more elegant and effective revetment wall with protective bastions. She also builds the Barbican as a secure entrance to the castle. I can't imagine, Sarah, that she would have gone to all this trouble and expense if she hadn't planned to use it regularly. Well, we can't be sure exactly what she had planned, but I think we can be sure that she fell in love with Leeds Castle the first time she saw it. They spent a lot of nights there compared to most of her other properties, a total of 51 nights. They spent Edward's 40th birthday there. They spent the... um, period of marriage of one of her closest nieces there. And I think she really wanted to give Leeds Castle something of the atmosphere of the Castilian court and something of the atmosphere of a family home. And within that whole concept of a civilised as well as fortified royal residence, there are a number of lifestyle improvements that we know Eleanor introduced here. She builds a bathhouse, which is still here, and decorates it with tiles in the Moorish style. She introduces carpets and tapestries, ornamental gardens and water features. There's a good case for arguing that she had a lasting impact on interior decoration and garden design in this country, because by the time she died, these had become features of other fashionable royal and baronial abodes. And she's big on fine porcelain and cutlery. She's even credited with introducing the table fork to England. What were they eating with before? Well, would you believe it? Fingers. And a knife. Seriously, they did bring forks back from Italy. Probably the Italians uh, had worked out that they were easier to eat pasta with. And they were used fairly extensively at court throughout Edward's and Eleanor's rule. Eleanor was a queen with intense style. Um, Although quite often she might be found on the hunting field looking less than smart, When she was putting together a home, she had huge style and very, very demanding um, approach to what she should have. She decorated everything absolutely beautifully. She had the most enormous tapestry collection. She could, of course, more than hold her own in conversation. I think that Edward must sometimes have felt slightly um, diminished, shall we say, by her scholarship. 
And I think hugely impressed because we do see him buying her the kinds of books she would have loved for her birthday, even though she had established her own scriptorium. That's essentially like a publishing house, her own studio of talented calligraphers and illustrators, uh, which was the only one in Northern Europe at the time. And the main one in Southern Europe was run by her brother, Alfonso. She used that to translate all her favourite books and to produce copies that she could give to friends. Um, examples of the books which were produced, not necessarily by this scriptorium, but for her, is the beautiful Douce Apocalypse, which she commissioned for her husband, which is, um, which is one of the treasures of the Bodleian Library. It seems a shame that, having taken all this trouble to create such a civilised home here at Leeds Castle, she spends so much of her reign on the road, accompanying Edward on crusade, on his campaigns in Wales and his long stays in Gascony, and checking on all her other properties. Was she, on reflection, too involved in her husband's warfare and in micromanaging her property portfolio when she had a whole office of people to do that for her? I mean, even when she dies, age 49, she's coming back from a tour of her properties in the Midlands rather than enjoying the lovely home she created here at Leeds Castle. Do you think, Sarah, that she could have managed her time better? Well, you can't expect me to agree with that. Um, what Eleanor did was she became incredibly involved in an important job which she thought she she thought was very worthwhile and which was very important to her husband's rule and to her family in the future, to future queens of England. I don't think I can possibly fault her for being incredibly committed to that job. And it's not fair to say that she'd got a department to do it for her because you can never really trust a department to do these things as well as you would do yourself if you're as talented as Eleanor. And on her deathbed, one of the things that she said to Edward is that she wanted a proper um, investigation into the way that her businesses had been run. And what was found, of course, was that in the years when she had been absent, and certainly sometimes when she was there, but in properties far away from where she was able to be, her department had actually not been behaving very well. So she was capable of running things far better than her department and she needed to keep on top of them. She needed to work hard to make sure that everything was done properly, but not um, unscrupulously. So Eleanor of Castile dies in 1290, aged 49, leaving Edward I so bereft that he commissions 12 monuments, the Eleanor Crosses, at each of the stopping points of her funeral cortege from Lincolnshire to Westminster Abbey, three of which survive today. The cross in front of Charing Cross Station, by the way, is a 19th century reinvention of the one that was originally at the junction of Whitehall and Trafalgar Square. As Sarah says in her book, this has to be the most complete and ornate set of monuments to a beloved spouse ever created in this country. And Edward also commissions William Torrell, the great tomb artist of the time, to create the wonderful effigy of Eleanor in Westminster Abbey that's still there today. Nine years later, Edward, now 60, marries the 20-year-old Margaret of France, but Eleanor remains the great love of his life. Sarah, with all that time you spent with Eleanor of Castile while researching and writing your book, did you come to love her too? That is quite a difficult question. I think I find her almost too admirable to love her. She is so vibrant, so driven, so intense about everything she does. I certainly regard her as a great role model. 
Um, but I almost don't dare to love her. Well, thank you, Sarah, for helping us get to know Leeds Castle's first and probably greatest queen. And thank you all for listening. In the next episode, we jump forward 30-odd years to find Edward II, the only one of Eleanor's sons to survive into adulthood, laying siege to his mother's favourite castle. What's going on? Stay tuned. If you're enjoying the series, we'd be very grateful if you could rate or review it and share it with your friends. And if you'd like to come and see the home Eleanor created here, Leeds Castle is ready to welcome you 364 days a year. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>